News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. Welcome to FAQ NYC. It's your host, Christina Greer. I'm here today with my co-host, Katie Honan. Hi, Katie Honan. Hi, Christy. How are you? I'm well, living the dream. Me too. I cannot wait to get into uh, the mayoral debate that was uh, between Eric Adams and Curtis Sliwa and get some of your thoughts on that. Later on in the episode, we've got Alvin Bragg, who came to talk to us about the uh, Eric Garner case that he's working on and representing Mrs. Carr and the family uh, and some other victims uh, and also thinking about uh, thinking forward to November 2nd and Election Day. And then lastly, we have another eulogy for New York with Albert Fox Khan that I hope you all will enjoy. So let's jump right in. Katie Honan. Yes. There was a mayoral debate. We know that we're going to the polls on November 2nd. And before, because uh, early voting. If we haven't done so already, I've already <laughs> voted, okay? Because I'm usually busy to. on election day, so I like to vote early. Um, but... Uh, when I watched it last week with my students, I think I told you they felt a sense of confusion and embarrassment that this is New York City, right? We're not talking about Ubalacha someplace, right? We're talking about a city of almost 9 million people, billions upon billions of dollars. And they were really looking, especially at Curtis Sliwa's, like, is this the best uh, that we can find uh, to go against someone like Eric Adams or anyone, right? Who, who's sort of the second man standing uh, in this debate, the second debate seemed like it devolved into name calling on behalf of Sliwa and Adams just kind of bobbing and weaving, smiling and just not getting in the mud. But I don't think that voters really got any new information. A lot of the questions seem to be a bit redundant uh, yeah. and reminiscent of the questions that we heard last week. Shout out to the great moderators uh, last week, especially. Um, hey, Sally. So I, I think... I'm not I'm not worried necessarily about November 2nd, but I am disappointed at the state of these debates. And I guess before we get into the nitty gritty as a journalist, is there any way we can make these debates more substantive? Like if you were in charge, because the world, according to Katie Honan, seems like it would be pretty awesome. <laughs> oh, no, uh, I don't know. Maybe don't. Depends on what I don't works. know. I'm kind of into it. Like Queen's Girl running the show. But if you were in charge of structuring these debates, how would you do so? And like what? What other ways would you get at the heart of some of these questions? Because they still seem so surface in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, look, last night's debate, uh, it, it did really devolve. And you had Curtis Lewa really acting like the Curtis Lewa we've known for years, right? The personality on the radio and on TV. Um, it felt like I was watching the uh, New York One segment, you know, again, where he just kind of does the, the zaniest stuff, uh, except this time he was going directly after Eric Adams. And I will say Eric Adams did have one dig. Um, Eric Adams was being very calm mm -hmm. about the whole thing. And he did mention Curtis Lewa allegedly hiding money to avoid paying child support for his oldest son, <laughs> as per yeah. reported during his divorce proceeding with the former Mary Sliwa. Um, So yeah, so that is, I, I think a lot of it depends on the candidates, mm -hmm. but also if you had an opportunity where it's not presented as a debate, as more of a conversation, right? Where it's just someone saying, hey, let's sit down these two people. Let's have a conversation, polite conversation and ask some questions. But I think when you have it as a debate, that's the whole point of a debate. And people maybe were to blame too. And, and by we, I don't mean just journalists, but the people viewing it, you want something spicy, right? Or, or that's what maybe people think. But yeah, if you tuned in last night undecided, you did not come away 
I would think having any more um, insight into these people as candidates. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there, there was an avoidance of asking of answering questions. And even like you said, some of the questions that we'd already heard what they wanted to do about crime. There was a climate change question. We already were asked that. A lot of specifics were not there. I joke that it felt a little bit like couples therapy at the end when they said, can you say something nice about the other person? Right. Like, like well, I, I, But interestingly enough, I thought that, uh, I, I thought the two nice things were actually pretty interesting, yeah. right? It's Wood talking about Eric Adams and health and healthy living. I mean, we saw the the storm that Michelle Obama went through trying to, right. you know, change the health of this nation. And then obviously, you know, animal shelters and sort of uh, uh, Eric Adams saying that, you know, Curtis Lee was obviously a big advocate for that. So, I mean, that part's like, right. But at the end of the day, we have bigger fish to fry. So. Or maybe what? you don't fry any fish at all. If you're in the right. vegan lifestyle, Sorry. you're vegan, you're vegan <laughs> and you but should yeah, not be yeah. frying. There are much <laughs> bigger tofu squares to fry and it's a lot to do. <laughs> I mean, I think when it comes to the debate, again, I, I, I just, I, I feel like I can't say this enough. It's just my level of disappointment in the Republican Party yeah. and not like I really care about them, but at the, at the end of the day, I mean, you go from Joe Loda to Nicole Maliotakis, which I thought was a, a pretty devolution. And then from Nicole Maliotakis to Curtis Sliwa, where, you know, I think you raised an interesting point. So would anyone know who Curtis Sliwa was without the Red Beret, right? And the antics. And I mean, last night, I thought that at one point in time, he'd start pulling out props, like he's, you know, carrot top and trying to make a point. And I, I think that New York faces far too many really serious issues that we have to think about in the upcoming months where, on the one hand, Curtis Luba Fine is taking it somewhat seriously, but he's not a serious person. And his antiquated view of what New York City is, what crime is, who criminals are, is really worrisome to me. Besides just being like frustrated that he's a distraction, it's worrisome that he looks at people, Black and Latinx primarily, as gangbangers and thugs who should be stopped and frisked and thrown into Rikers that, you know, he wants to grow by the by the moment. I mean, look, even looking specifically to last night's debate, he very incorrectly stated that Yadonis Rodriguez, a city council member who's a very close ally of Eric Adams, is not a citizen. Right. And I'm thinking, I'm watching this going, well, that's not true. Mm-hmm. How could someone say something so wrong? And why did he think that? You could perhaps <laughs> come up with very racist intentions behind that. He later tweeted he's been a citizen since the year 2000. So it's been 21 years. Um, 21 years. Why it was brought up, you know, because it was over the question of giving, um, allowing voting for Mm non-citizens. But again, it's, it seemed like Curtis was even being like a caricature of himself and the voters he's trying to appeal to. Um, And saying something like that, it answers people's worst assumptions. And it's sort of, you know, maybe someone's watching that going, yeah, that guy, yeah, maybe he's not a citizen. What, because he's an immigrant? That's not the case. But that's so, yeah. where the Republican Party is right now. I mean, they've yeah. become a caricature of the caricature of the caricature. Like, I think Donald yeah. Trump just kept pushing that envelope to to now. It's like, wait, are you guys, is he, tro- I thought he was trolling them at first, and then he was trolling us. And it's like, you're literally saying anything, and your followers are, will believe it, and also follow you off this cliff of reality. And Sliwa has picked up that mantle on a local level, which I find really troubling um, yeah. that we know X percent of New Yorkers, I think 30% or maybe a touch more will actually vote for him. Yeah. And I agree with that number. There was a poll this week that showed him at that. Um, 
but uh, yeah, and I, I think too, there's, there is an appetite for, you know, what people always, people want choice and they want options beyond mm-hmm. just one party, right? I know plenty of Democrats who would love to vote for, they don't care, they'll vote, you know, for the person, not necessarily the party. And without someone, even like a viable option. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, just watching it again yesterday, I was like, this doesn't really answer anything. It doesn't. Um, it, it was a lot of catchphrases and buzz, you know, buzzwords to try to, again, like you're used to be on the radio, you're trying to say the catchiest thing. And it was attacking Eric Adams instead of, in my opinion, actually offering up ideas. Uh, the one idea that he had that he was very adamant about that, again, I'm thinking he's directly appealing to however many people fall in this category, but saying that the city employees who by Friday, if they don't have the vaccine, they will be put on leave. He said they're going to be fired, which is incorrect, um, unpaid leave, but that if he's elected, he'll give them back pay and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, he's appealing to the thousands of people who stopped traffic on the Brooklyn Bridge this week and don't mm-hmm. seem to have gotten arrested for it. Um, the city employees who were against this mandate. And I'm sure by the end of, you know, today we're filming this Wednesday, judging by the social media posts of people against this mandate, they're going to keep ratcheting up um, these kind of protests. Curtis was at that protest. When he says that, when he says they're going to give back pay, um, I think Eric Adams's response was very... Uh, smart and intelligent. This is the mandate. This is what it what it is. Talking about the seriousness of COVID and and what everyone has been through. Um, yeah, and so I agree that, with him. I do think that De Blasio could and should have gone through hundred uh, percent unions too, right? Even if he couldn't get a full sign off, it's like at least don't let them get caught unawares in a lot of ways. It's like try to work with the union leadership before just making yeah, a mandate. I, right. I mean, that's who you're, and even asking the mayor. This is a little bit off topic, but asking the mayor. Okay. Well, what's the plan if there's thousands of city employees not at work on Monday, even mm-hmm. he can't really offer much of a plan. Um, right. But yeah, so that was the debate. There's still time to vote. Remember right. people can always write in a, a person. Right. But I mean, I think <laughs> we're going to have a lot of Manhattanites and, and folks who didn't get Maya or Catherine or whomever who can't find, find it in their hearts to vote for Eric Adams. Obviously they wouldn't vote for Curtis Lewin. So they'll either abstain or write in someone, but uh, I, I think it's really important that, uh, for all of our listeners to take this election very seriously and, and tell others 100%. around you to do so. And also remember to turn over your ballot because there are five Flip it. ballot initiatives that are incredibly important uh, that we all need to make sure we we read, hopefully beforehand, and then uh, go into your ballot box ready to, to decide one way or the other. Great. I got to vote. Right. I got to vote. I got to find the time to vote. I voted early and got my sticker. Um, so, We've got a great episode. We've got an interview with Al Bragg coming up and our good friend Harry Siegel was on that call. And then we have a eulogy to New York with Albert Fox Khan. Thanks for listening. Alvin Bragg, you're not going to say so. I will. The uh, next Manhattan district attorney. Thank you for uh, rejoining FAQ NYC uh, with a different hat on right now as the uh, counselor to the petitioners in this uh, very special, very unique judicial inquiry that's happening right now. We're actually recording on Wednesday during your uh, lunch break uh, from the hearing. So can you, uh, let's start, can can you fill us in on how this inquiry came to be, uh, the scope of it, its purpose, what we've learned so far, and what else you're you're hoping to unearth and, and sort of what broader things this might show in the course of it. So 
what started this was, you know, Miss Carr and and other police accountability organizers pressing the mayor and city hall and the NYPD for information going back, you know, seven plus years uh, when meetings didn't work and uh, organizing and protesting didn't get all the information. And when the, the mayor basically said after the Pantaleo administrative hearing that, that, that the city was done, um, you know, we turned to the courts and filed this action, which is under a arcane provision of the city charter, uh, but arcane, but important, allowing five uh, in the language of the, the charter citizen taxpayers to bring an action uh, to, with the permission of a court, bring into court city officials uh, alleged to have violated or neglected their duties. Uh, and so we've got, uh, you know, Miss 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 Carr, Constance Malcolm, whose whose son Ramali Graham was was killed by the NYPD, and a number of um, members of Communities United for Police Reform as the petitioners. And the action is you know, pretty straightforward. It says, you know, we we want to hear from the officials who were making decisions about discipline, and and not imposing discipline. We want to hear from the officers who uh, were at the scene and what was the probable cause for, for the arrest. Uh, we want to hear from uh, officers who completed paperwork um, that's not accurate. Uh, we also know that uh, Mr. Garner's uh, medical information and alleged arrest records were put into the public domain. How that happened? We want to know about those leaks. Uh, and then we want to know about the lack of medical care at the scene. And that's what was, was uh, testimony we just ended with from the lunch break. And then a whole investigatory structure. Who, who investigated this? Uh, why was discipline not imposed? So that's 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 what it is. And that's what we're in the middle of. And the judge has given us two weeks to explore these issues. So I think because the city has been saying, the mayor has been saying, this is put to bed, this is done in different ways for so long. And before that, that we have to wait until this hearing then the hearing happened. Pantaleo was fired. This took many years. And he said, we can't prejudge. Then it happened. And he said, now we're done. The, the people don't realize just how staggering some of this is. That, that uh, Eric Gardner was, was charged with an absurd felony um, after his death. You know, that, that, that he'd been smuggling tens of thousands of cigarettes. Um, that there was no... IAB investigation. So even within the police department, if I'm understanding this correctly, about that absurd charge, uh, about how this was, was actually dealt with. And all this comes from an officer driving by and saying, oh, I, I see these guys at 200 feet or so. I can tell they're selling loose cigarettes. And then this becomes uh, a man dies. He, he's then charged with a crime that's totally unrelated to what happens and as said at this inquiry. Which we should probably add, right? There's no. The idea is just to get the information out there uh, 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 for the public good. There, there, there's nothing else that happens, if I understand this right, at the end of this. But I mean, that, that's pretty wild. I think even people who followed this case closely might not have realized that, that he was charged after his death. Uh, that 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 the there was really no investigation of his criminal records leaking of how he got charged totally incorrectly with having tens of thousands of cigarettes or the, or the rest of it. Does this point to sort of larger issues with the, uh, with the NYPD and is the inquiry going to be a mechanism for opening some of those up? 
So that's the, you, you hit the nail on the head in that, you know, the, 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 the city charter doesn't, you know, require uh, a, a judicial finding. It just is the premise is that the sunlight is a disinfectant. And we do hope that the information leads to accountability. And one thing that I think is, is clear is that we shouldn't just be talking about what happened in Staten Island on one day. Very important, obviously, the, the, the tragic death and killing of Eric Garner. But to know that it was set in motion at one police plaza months before by a focus, a focus on uh, a decision to, to, to prioritize, um, you know, a sale of untaxed cigarettes and take this type of enforcement action. And then, as you said, started, you know, on the, the day of July 17, 2014, by an observation by someone who was at that meeting at, at one police plaza from 200 feet, uh, where he concedes he didn't have probable cause, but that set, the, set, set things in motion. Uh, and then after the fact, you know, there was an investigation, IAB investigated. Um, but, you know, we heard testimony, the focus was 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 former officer Pantaleo. And we have all these other issues uh, that need to be explored. And, and, and that's what we're doing. Uh, we also have the issue of the delay, right, which came up yesterday in yesterday's testimony. Um, the the decision to, to wait for uh, the Department of Justice, even after I think it was clear to most observers that um, particularly with the change of administration at the federal level, that 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 the charges would not be, be happening. Uh, so all of that is bound up in this, and I think putting it into the public domain, um, you know, folks like you who are, you know, go, uh, you know, follow this closely, then talking about the issues, and and look, you know, the mayor's got, you know, he's still the mayor for, you know, a couple more months, pushing him on this. He said, I mean, you know, something that always sticks in my mind. After George Floyd in Minneapolis, he was so quick to praise the local officials there for the quick action they took. Right. We're seven plus right. years later, he's still mayor for two months. Um, you know, this information could be used um, uh, to, 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 to take remedial steps. And so, um, look, that, that's, what, that's what we're doing. We're, we're in virtual court um, pressing these points. And at the end, the deliverables, the information, and then, and then, People in City Hall and people in the power to, to, to do something with them, we hope will we'll use this information. So, Al, I want to thank you again for coming on, um, especially during your lunch break. So two things for you. One, what is the best case scenario that can come out of this? Because you've talked a lot about structural issues. So one, obviously, justice for the Garner family. But like, what are some other structural issues that you hope to get out of it? And two, you've mentioned virtual court quite a few times. Are there some possible benefits of being in virtual court or what are some of the pros and cons of actually not being there where we can have these conversations face-to-face, eye-to-eye to really, uh, I would say, make what happened really tangible uh, and visceral for a lot of folks? Yeah, I'll start with the second one. You know, one of the, you know, it's been my real honor and privilege to, to represent these petitioners for two, two plus years. And in particular, um, you know, to, 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 to see the persistence um, of Ms. Carr uh, in this, you know, I think everyone, this righteous, you know, uh, uh, um, pursuit that she's been on for seven plus years. And one of the most poignant moments for me was uh, when the judge uh, ruled that the case would be virtual. And there's a tension, right? Um we obviously want to be in as soon as possible. We wanted this to happen years ago to get this information. So for Ms. Carr to, to decide and the court permitted her, Ms. Carr herself to, to address, because I knew 
we said, look, no lawyer is going to be able to capture just the way she can. Uh, and so she talked to the court and she said, look, yeah, I wanted this information before. Um, and I want this to go forward, but I want, I want these officers to have to come into court and the people who made these decisions and look me in the eye. Uh, and so that's what's lost. What's lost is um, her literal day in court. Uh, and I also think just from questioning witnesses for so many years, it's different. You know, if I'm in the room with you and I can, you know, ask a question and look you in the eye too, I think I elicit a different response. Um, you know, you feel differently when you're taking that oath and putting your hand in the stand, sitting next to someone in a black robe versus being in your living room, you know, maybe wearing your shorts. I don't know what they do, but I know when I'm on Zoom, I, I do that. So I think there's a different feel. Um, uh, you know, I know there were some applications from the press this morning to do video um, that that was denied. You know, you know, if that were to be granted at any point, you know, maybe that would be, you know, a way to capture this that wouldn't normally be done in the court, but the court has denied that, denied that. So we um, can watch this, but right? Other but, but, but I've watched, I watched some of this, the virtual part to me has been very sort of weird and distressing. Like, you know, you're showing a guy a map and he can't show you what he's seeing on the map. But yeah, same thing. We all get on all these zooms, but I can watch this. But if I, if I was to record my screen, I, I would actually be committing a crime. And that just seems so weird to me. Yeah, you'd be vi violating the court's order. And, and, and I know there are now some press applications. She denied them. I, I assume that they'll be renewed um, or, or they'll come back to her because she, 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 she opened the door to some still footage. But, but it is hard. I mean, we've all been there, right? There's, there, there, there are times when there's no, you know, someone's muted and they're talking and you have to wait or, you know, playing. I, I don't, I mean, you know, it's very distressing to watch this video, um, obviously more so for Ms. Carr and the family. But we had an issue with the video. It was playing on our end, but the the lawyer for the city had audio, but not video, right? So we had to sort of go back. It, it, you know, so those things, I guess they could happen anywhere, but we all know that virtually, you know, so, so I think it's been a little clunky in parts. Um, one thing that I think, you know, as I just, I try to be a glass half full kind of person. So while we, we would prefer to be in person, you know, hopefully, the, you know, the streaming allows maybe people who for one other reason or another wouldn't have been able to get to the court to watch it. So that's a possible upside, but I know the most interested parties like Ms. Carr would have been there. Um, you know, I would have been in the court and it would have been a very different feel. Uh, so I think that's unfortunate in terms of the best case scenario. I think the information coming out, I'll give you the worst case scenario. The information comes out, you know, the stenographer prints it out and we put it in the in the county clerk, which is what's required by the charter. And then no one does anything. Uh, you know, I think even just in the first 24 hours, we've we've learned that, um, you know, and, and Harry said some of it, you know, the observations from a distance, some things we knew a little bit. But now with the focus not being so so much exclusively on Pantaleo, but talking about how, what set this in motion, I think particularly when we're having this broader conversation about safety in the city uh, and people are basically you know there's a growing chorus i think still a mi minority course we're growing chorus to say that look we need to be um you know kind of going back to some of the the the, the you know I'll just call it what it is that you know the, the the policing that led to these racial disparities uh, we hear a growing chorus for that so i'm hoping that this is a reminder and it's not just about that one day in staten island but about a structure and decisions made at the highest level that led to 
Um, you know, this is not a coincidence that Mr. Garner was a black man, right? You know, this is emblematic and illustrative of, um, you know, structures put in place. And I think that reminder and focusing on that, particularly in this moment when people are, you know, genuinely having some public safety concerns, but to say that this was not the solution. So there are no top officials, I would say, who are going to be part of this inquiry. The mayor is not going to be there the police commissioner at the time or the police commissioner now. Is that a challenge in terms of laying out, if you will, the structural indictment rather than the one related to this specific crime? It's it's a challenge. So, you know, I said the, the most poignant moment for me was Ms. Carr addressing the court and explaining why she wanted to be in person and why she was even willing to wait even longer to get this transparency. Um, Another moment before the inquiry that was 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 critical and, and something that we we also did not not win on was, you know, we we wanted the, the testimony of Mayor De Blasio, uh, of the police commissioners, of the deputy commissioner Kevin Richardson, who was head of the the DAO, which is the group that adjudicates, IAB investigates, and the DAO decides and and, and, and goes forward and, and does the the sort of administrative proceeding if it's an IAB case. So we thought. That, that he was he was important. Uh, the mayor has been outspoken. He's met with the, the you know the Garner family. He's talked about his personal involvement in this. So the notion that he does not have something to add here is something that you know we respectfully disagree with, with the court on, um, and just the structure. Um, and in some ways, um, you know the, the the as one of the lawyers from the officers said, you know the uh, he he represents an officer and was deferring to a chief in terms of the timing of the testimony. And so look, this is a hierarchical, you know, I don't know if he said paramilitary, I think he said organization. Um, you know, we, we know the command structure. So in something that got international attention, the notion that um, the mayor and the police commissioners and the DAO were not involved um, is something that, that, that doesn't comport with what we believe uh, to have occurred. And so we've made that argument to the court. You know, I'm a, as a lawyer, I'm an officer of the court. We're going to abide by that order. We obviously can't bring them in without uh, the court's uh, decision. But yeah, I think it does. I think it makes it makes it more challenging. We're trying to elicit things from other other witnesses. Um, I think we'll be doing some things, you know, publicly speaking and trying to tie together things we know. Um, but yes, it, it, it I think that to have this be a fully robust and transparent proceeding where we learn everything that, that we think Ms. Carr is entitled to know, we think those those actors were, were, were critical. So every, I was talking with Katie Honan about this right before you came on, but every cop I've talked to about this over nearly eight years now, uh, ones who are furious about what happened to Eric Gardner, ones who are furious about what happened eventually to uh, Daniel Pantaleo, but without exception, has given me some variation of there but for the grace of God go I, in that nobody was trying to kill Garner by, by all accounts, that uh, if you use arrest, there's going to be a level of violence and chaos that sometimes is necessary in those, that you don't always control those circumstances. And, you know, I've just been struck by the consistency of that and the people with very different politics and starting perspectives. And I'd be interested in, in, in what you think of that and what you might say to police officers who have that concern that if, if they're involved in whatever situations 
and uh, they, they have to or think they have to arrest someone. And then and then something happens to that person that, that this then becomes they then become, a, you know, a, a newspaper story and a political one and so forth. And that this discourages them from maybe doing their jobs. So so what I would say first is to the police leadership um, that I think we have to, you know, and in some ways, I think people are trying to move on from the discussions of last year of the, the, the role of policing. Um, uh, so what I've said, and, and, and look, we look at Eric Garner, untaxed cigarettes, George Floyd, you know, a counterfeit bill um, that I don't think anyone has any proof that he knew was counterfeit. Um, a lot of these, you know, Tamir Rice, toy gun. Um, I think we got to look at what we're, you know, particularly in the, the, the untaxed cigarette and the, the counterfeit bill, what we're using police for. Um, so the, the fi- thing I find with remarkable consistency, and you know, obviously I'm a former prosecutor, I've worked with law enforcement closely. I've never heard someone say, hey, you know what, I want to go to the police force to, to enforce untaxed cigarettes laws. Yeah, I want to go to the police force because you know what counterfeit bills really is why I get up and gets me going in the morning. I've never heard officers say that. Um, you know, we have real issues. You know, I had a sh- shooting on my block uh, about two weeks ago. That's we need our police officers focused on that. Uh, so I think my 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 main message is to those who lead deciding what our where our resources should be deployed, um, and then you know for those who. Who say, well, we got to deal with order and disorder. We can't, you know, well, government has so many levers and we have to use all of them. So, um, you know, I'm, you know, I'm also, uh, you know, I, I'm a visiting professor. I teach crim law and, uh, you know, we, we I signed the broken windows, um, the most recent, you know, from one of the offers kind of looking back uh, and it's really telling. It says, look, you know, we said if there's a broken window, if you don't fix it, um, it may lead to a second broken window and then something else. But we didn't say to throw into jail the, the kid who threw the rock through the window. So we can address these issues without turning to sort of a reflexive carceral approach. I mean, when I was at the attorney general's office, we we too thought that, you know, taxation on cigarettes was a significant issue. Right. I mean, cigarettes are, you know, so we tax them for a reason. Uh, we did something very different than the type of enforcement that we're talking about in court now. We sued two major carriers, Federal Express and, and, and UPS, who shipped thousands and thousands of untaxed cigarettes. Like these are the people who are making the, the money. They're real really money. facilitating it. Um, and to give you a sense of how much real money, right? We went to court. No one died. No, no one's human dignity was impaired. And we got more than $100 million back for the city and state public fist. Like, let's let's just do that. Right. Let, let, let's just be smart about which government lever we pull and let's deploy our police for things, you know, sexual assault, most underreported crime in America. You know, guns, very serious. These ghost guns, serious. That We have things that that, that, that the police should be doing. And I think we need to be affirming in the role for them. But but this stuff, I, mean, I just finished watching the video it was one of the things we did. It is disturbing. For me, I've obviously seen it before. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a professional. This is part of a, you know, I'm used to w- looking at, you know, you know, medical examiner uh, photo. This is disturbing, and the notion that this this is how we deployed for, uh, over, you know, five packs of untaxed cigarettes. 
And it's not isolated, right? George Floyd, the legend, you know, counterfeit bill, you know, most of my friends got a story, right? I mean, you know, including me. And it's not about, you know, the perils uh, that I think most people are talking about around their kitchen table. So that, that that's my message. And that's what I've been trying to, to say for years, actually. But this is, a this is uh, I think, a moment to, to, to yell it from the hilltops. Thank you again for taking the time. Last question here. So if this inquiry is meant to provide uh, sunlight and to uh, to offer some some lessons for, for people in positions of, of power and creating policy. What should this say to hypothetically the, the next Manhattan district attorney, which unlike the AG's office, right, which is mostly a civil office, is is dealing with uh, with, with a constant stream of, of criminal cases? You know, you know, so you mean in terms of sort of my involvement, what is my involvement in this, say? Or or, or, or just switching hats uh, uh, when, when you potentially put on this new hat as the um, most powerful criminal law enforcement official in some ways in, in the city, I would argue. Like what, what lessons will you take from from your experience working on this case and from this inquiry and how you handle that office? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's that 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 fairness and safety are are combined. They're inextricably linked. You know, when we look at some of the studies after, um, you know, an incident like the tragic killing of Eric Garner or like uh, George Floyd, you know, high profile incident, you'll see in 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 affected neighborhoods, nine one one calls go down. Um, you, you see an acute trust crisis, uh, and I know from you know serving as a former prosecutor, you can't make cases. And it's also intuitive, you know, without victims coming forward, without witnesses. So you know, my goal is to link these two, right? To link safety and fairness. And we really can't have them. I talked to my law enforcement partners. I said, look, the person you stop today, maybe next week's witness and next month's victim, and you got to treat them accordingly. Um, and so that, that's how, that's how we're going to govern from that, that perspective, which is, you know, this case is, is, uh, has been, like I said, a privilege to work on it. In many ways, it's kind of extension of, you know, I've, I've been dealing with these issues, um, you know, for really you know, my professional career, but also my, my life growing up being stopped myself and and asking the question of, you know, you know, under what circumstances should we be using police and when should we not? Uh, and that's a question, um, you know, I take into the DA's office and obviously I don't I won't oversee directly the police, but we'll have, uh, um, you know, the final say in terms of what enters our criminal system in Manhattan as a charge. Um, this this obviously never got that far. We're talking about the you mentioned the ten thousand cigarettes and that charge, um, you know, and and some of the 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 response we've heard is, well, you know, the district attorney would have fixed that charge. So, all right, well, didn't get to that point. Someone died, um, and so we need to be having a larger conversation about what would the district attorney charge in any event, um, and is this a good use of our law enforcement resources? And so, this is a conversation. You know, this this matter will end uh, in terms of you know being in court. Um, you know, likely next week, uh, but but the conversation's got to continue, and I'm going to take it into government with me. Okay, we need to let you go do a press conference, Al. We are so thankful. Um, promise you're going to come back and see us on the other side of November second. Always, I love talking to y'all. <laughs> I know you do. I love talking. I know to you do. I can tell. Well, we appreciate you, and we appreciate you uh, representing the the Garner family in such a thoughtful manner. Um, especially because uh, they are a proxy for so many families across the city and the country who have unfortunately had to 
uh, experience uh, similar circumstances. It's my honor. I, I love the fact y'all are both surrounded by books too. Y'all are so knowledgeable. <laughs> love it. It's very, it's Harry, very- one day I'll tell you about the conversations, you know, Al Bragg secretly wants to be a professor. And so like a, a full time um, so professor for a couple of years. Just, and it's a good gig, right? I told you I, I, I when we had that initial conversation, it's a fantastic gig to be able to influence the future youth of America um, or the future lawyers of America in your case. Uh, but we, we are so appreciative that you always make time for FAQ NYC and we wish you the best of luck in your case. And uh, also on November 2nd. Cool. Thanks so much. Good talking to y'all. Take Thank care. You. And now for our special October eulogy for New York series. This is by Albert Fox Kahn, and it's called Eulogy for the City of Safety. A eulogy for a city of safety. Friends, we have gathered here today to remember that long lost city of New York. The one of safety and promise, the one where we understood the line between reality and nightmare. I remember walking through the towers as a child and seeing their shadow stretch out before me, the terrifying realization if one of them were to tip over, I could never run away. And my father laughed, thought it was ludicrous to talk about the towers falling. We knew that was the sort of nightmare that children have, the sort of anxiety that permeates our minds at times, but we could also tell the difference between a nightmare and being wide awake. And on that day 20 years ago when I saw the dust clouds billow out and couldn't begin to understand the images that were coming in from across the water, standing on the Brooklyn Promenade, I I felt this sense of surreal detachment from what was real. Was this the reality of my city now? And there have been so many struggles, so many setbacks, so many horrors in the years since, where time and again I I look out and wonder if this is real. Because it's hard to know anymore what is the fear that's completely irrational? What are the things of childhood nightmare? And what are the threats that are real? Watching the city close down again more than it ever had in the aftermath of the attacks, watching the devastation that COVID wrought, it it once again felt like the impossible demons were wide awake and walking the streets with us, that we couldn't know anymore where safety was, what the limits of the horrors could be. And as I walk the city now and I see the rebirth of this energy that permeates once again the stores and the concerts and all the different venues that make New York feel like itself, I look at it again with that uncertainty of childhood. Unsure which of these shadows 
will next turn real. Unable to tell where the safety ends and the nightmares begin. And of all the things that we've lost over these last 20 years, of all the things that I'm desperate to win back, it's that sense of certainty. The knowledge of what life might bring us and what things will never change. What earth is shaky and what things simply can't move. And to once again be able to walk the streets and see the shadows that come out and know that there's truly nothing to be scared of. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Bracket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. A special thank you to our guests this week, Alvin Bragg, Democratic candidate for Manhattan DA. A special thanks for Albert Fox Kahn, of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project for his wonderful contribution to our eulogy series in his Eulogy for a City of Safety. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Wear a mask, get a flu shot, and stand by for a special gab fest after Election Day with Ben Max. <laughs>